I invite you to open with me this morning to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20, and our kids can be headed out for kids' church. We did condense the order of worship just a little bit. Sorry about the curveball there. We're going to be celebrating communion at the end of the service, and so um, we, are, uh, we abbreviated that just a little bit so we could buy a little time at the back end of the service for that, okay? As you're turning to Genesis chapter 20, I want to kind of, I just want to thank you for just a moment. Um, I don't think I've ever said this to you before, but thank you for letting it be such a joy to preach here at First Baptist Church. Um, I talk often to friends of mine who are in ministry, and that's what I talk about most often concerning this church is that every Sunday when I stand before you, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy just seeing your faces every week, but then also your engagement. I want you to know that I don't take that for granted. Uh, you really uh, listen carefully and you're patient with me, and I just want to say thank you because it means a lot, and I don't take it for granted. It means a great deal, especially last week as we walked through a really, really difficult passage of Scripture your graciousness and your kindness and your attention um, was spectacular, and I was astounded with what God did, particularly in last week's service. This morning, we're in Genesis chapter 20, and I'm going to go ahead and get into the text of Scripture really quick uh, because we do have some ground to cover. And so I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, we're just going to read the first two verses, and uh, we'll be working our way through the whole chapter this morning. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you that your word is always good. That yes, you do repeat lessons in scripture for our good and your glory. And so God, I pray that as we work through this passage that we will hear uh, this truth in a fresh way. That we will be ready to apply it to our lives and that we will be forever changed because we have heard from you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you've been following us through this series of sermons, of course, you pick up on how we've came to an episode that seems pretty familiar to us. We've seen this very episode play out before back in Genesis chapter 17. You remember that very well. And you may wonder, why in the world does the Bible repeat itself here? Well, this is a unique event. And yes, Abraham does repeat the very same mistake. And there's an important truth in all of this. You see, the last time we saw Abraham, he was a spiritual giant, and he was, he was looking over the smoldering remains of Sodom. You remember that, that speechless scene, right? He's up on the mountaintop, and he sees what has happened to these cities of the valley, and it, there's this contrast between their sin and Abraham's righteousness, because we're reminded that just in the chapter before, it was Abraham's prayer of righteousness and boldness and intercession that spared the life of Lot. And so here Abraham is, this towering spiritual giant looking over 
the remains of this sinful and broken city and certainly over the despair of Lot, as we saw last week. At that moment, and in light of Lot's gross sins at the end of the last chapter, we might have been inclined to think that Abraham had spiritually arrived. He had arrived at that mountaintop experience, so to speak. But God is careful to remind us right here in chapter 20 that Abraham was still a very flawed and broken person. There are two things I want us to consider before we make our way through the rest of the chapter that really are just based upon these first two verses. The first thing is this. We must be aware that sin is a constant trap in our lives. We gotta be aware that sin is, is all around us and we have temptations all around us that wanna trap us. It's clear that, that Abraham's sin of choice was to trust in his own resources and cleverness instead of trusting in God. Again, we saw this back in Genesis chapter 12. We've seen this episode play out before in his life. But I really want you to make note of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. And that's, that's a scripture that should go in the margin of your Bible here. Because Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 declares this, sin clings closely. Sin clings closely. That means that, that it's still a part of our lives. We may have trusted in Jesus. We may have chosen to follow him as our Savior. But sin still clings closely. You know, we all have those sins that we're more inclined towards than others. For some of you this morning, this is going to get real personal, but hang with me. For some of you, it's anger. That your first inclination in a situation when things don't go your way is to respond in anger. You may lash out at those around you and it turns into a, a hateful sort of monologue. Maybe that's your sin of choice. Maybe that's the sin that clings so closely to you this morning. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's the, it's the reality that you fall into the temptation of lust. Maybe what begins as just swapping through some pages on your phone turns into you falling into this temptation of lustfulness. Perhaps that is the sin that clings so closely to you. Maybe it's gossip. You just have a difficult time control, controlling your tongue, right? And, and you find yourself in a conversation that seems so innocent, and then you begin to share things with others around you that you shouldn't be sharing. And that is your sin of choice. That's the sin that clings so closely to you. See, I want to make it clear this morning. We're really not that much different than Abraham. We look at this episode and we say, how could he? I mean, my goodness, he had, he had seen God's goodness, this testimony of God's grace in his life. How could he do this again? I want to ask you the same question. How could you do it again and again and again? How could we do that again and again and again? It's because sin clings closely. But secondly, notice this. Again, just in the first two verses here. Abraham's specific sin had put God's promise in jeopardy. This specific sin in his life, and we talked about this a little bit back in chapter 12, but this specific sin had put God's promise in jeopardy. Remember, God had promised offspring through the union of Abraham and Sarah. Now, before in chapter 12, I want you to notice the change that had happened. In chapter 12, he had promised to Abraham, or Abram at that time, you will have a son. You will have a child of promise. But Sarah, her name was called then, was not necessarily a part of that promise explicitly at that time. 
But a lot had happened. A lot of things had changed since then. God had told them just a few chapters back, no, Sarah is going to be the one who bears the child of promise. She's indeed going to be a part of this. What's even more astounding is that if we follow the timeline of the last few chapters, we find that it was just about three months ago. No more than three months had passed since God had reaffirmed his promise. How do we know that? Well, remember just a a couple chapters ago, God had said, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Remember that? And, And so clearly at this point in chapter 20, she was not yet pregnant. Well, of course, we follow biology and we understand that it takes nine months for a child to be born and and the gestational process has to take place. So it's clear if we follow this, simple math tells us no more than three months had passed. How quickly Abraham had gotten impatient. How quickly he was willing to, to send his wife, Sarah, into the harem of Abimelech. Remember in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 19, again, God specifically promised that the child would come through Sarah. You see, Abraham's besetting sin, this sin that clung so closely to him of self-reliance and sufficiency, it had put God's promise in jeopardy. But here's what we're going to learn from this narrative. This is the main idea of the message. We can trust that God is able to keep his promises. We can trust that God is able to keep his promises. Here's what we're going to see in this chapter. It's going to be really hard to find the hero in this chapter, in a person, a flesh and blood human being. You see, before it was easy to identify, or we were tempted to identify Abraham as the hero over Lot and his folly. But it's clear here, Abraham is not the hero. In fact, God is the one shining star in this chapter. And so here's what we're going to learn. We're going to learn a few character traits of who God is and how that should impact who we are and how we live before him. Why is this important? Because God is able to keep his promises. In spite of our brokenness, in spite of our sin, in spite of our folly, in spite of our inclination to try to mess things up royally, God is still sovereign and in control. And he will see his promises through. So again, we're going to work through this chapter together. The first trait I want you to see about God in this chapter is this. God keeps his promises because he is sovereign. God keeps his promises because he is sovereign. Let me read verses 3 through 7 to you. It says at the beginning of verse 3, But God... Circle that. Underline that. That's an important phrase to to hold fast to. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You're about to die because of the woman that you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. So the key theme in these verses is God's sovereignty. That God is sovereign. 
Here's what we see in verse 3. God's sovereignty should arrest our attention. It should arrest our attention. Now, I acknowledge this right off the bat. There are a lot of glossed over eyes at this point in the audience. Here's why. You have no earthly idea what the word sovereignty means. That's okay. That's all right. We're going to walk through it. It's a key theme in Scripture, so I want to define this for all of us. Young, old, in between. We need to understand this concept. The next time you hear it, I want you to know what it means. Okay? Here's the truth. Very simply. You're going to be astounded how simple this is. God's sovereignty means this. God is in control. That's it. God is in control. You say, why do we have this big $10 word? Well, we like $10 words sometimes. God is in control. And what we need to understand from verse 3 onward is that that notion of God being in control should arrest our attention. It should cling to our souls. It should grip our lives. I told you to underline and circle that, that, those two words, those six letters and that one space in between there in verse 3. The phrase, but God. You see, sometimes it's the smallest words or phrases that seem to carry the weightiest meaning. These six little letters and two words, they illustrate such an occasion. Listen carefully. These two words occur coupled together 45 times in combination with one another in the Bible. 45 different occasions where the scriptures say clearly, but God. And each time they testify of God's might and power to intervene in the human situation. You might be reminded in the life of Joseph. Our hope is that, that I know we're moving slow. We're eventually going to get there in Genesis. It's going to be a couple of years, so y'all hang on tight. We'll get there. And, and you may remember that story, though. Joseph and his brothers, they, they sold him into slavery. Remember that? And all this evil was committed against him. But guess what it says? But God was in control in that whole situation. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. You see, that's how this plays itself out in Abraham's situation here. Abraham had made a mess of everything. But God was still in control. For Abraham, this was God's intervention. But for Abimelech, a terrifying declaration followed these words. In verse 3, God literally said to Abimelech, you're as good as dead because of what you have done. The situation could not have been more grave for Abimelech. You see, this arrested his attention. This encounter with God through a dream was enough to grab his thoughts and his emotions. I want to ask you a very pointed question this morning. When is the last time you were arrested by the sovereignty of God. When is the last time that, that you were so captivated by this notion that God is in control that it caused you to sweat like it might have Abimelech? When is the last time that you were arrested by this notion that God was in control that it impacted all of your thoughts and all of your actions? And all of your relationships. I want to draw you to such a moment for just a minute. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 speak so beautifully 
regarding God's sovereignty. Listen to this. For everything was created by him. We could stop there. Let that captivate you. Let that take hold of your soul. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. As if that wasn't enough, listen to what the scriptures say. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Ain't that good? Like we prayed just a moment for the Christians in Ukraine and, and all of the people in that area of the world that are facing such a difficult situation. What a profound truth that believers in Christ in that place can hold on to. That God holds it together. That God's got them. Listen, although we, we may be inclined to minimize this quality of God's character, we should instead be compelled to praise him because of this greatness and majesty. And notice this as we get to verse 6. God's supreme power and foreknowledge should then give us peace. God's supreme power and foreknowledge should give us peace. You see, in verses 4 and 5, Abimelech tries to plead his case. In a frantic attempt, even in his dream, he attempts to prove his innocence and his purity of heart. He's saying, God, I didn't know. Uh, look, these people deceived me. Uh, surely you're not going to punish me because we're innocent in this. My hands are clean. My conscience is pure. I love how God responds in verse 6. I want you to see this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know. Isn't that good? Yes, he says, I know. What a profound truth for Abimelech in this moment. For God to say, no, you didn't have to tell me all of that. I already knew your heart. And then he continues in verse 6. He says what? I kept you from sinning. I kept you from touching her. You see, he says, not only did I know your heart, but I was so sovereign in all of this. I was so in control of this situation and your activity that I kept you from sinning. My goodness, what peace must have flooded over Abimelech's soul in that sleepless night. This God who certainly was almighty and terrifying knew his heart. This type of peace is not all that strange to us. We trust people all the time who know more than we do, right? Those of you that, that fly regularly, you know what I'm talking about. You get on that plane, let me ask you a question. Do you know how to fly that plane? No, we have no pilots here, okay? We have heart doctors and stuff, but we don't have pilots. Who'd you point at? Jim? Jim? I did not know about this. I'm not getting up in the air with you, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> But we do. We get in that plane. We don't, we don't know how to do it. We don't know what's going on. We, we get on that plane, and, and guess what? We trust that someone piloting the whole thing knows what they're doing. And most of us get on that plane with little thought about what might happen to us. We don't have a clue. Why? Because we trust them. How wonderful is it to know that there is a God who knows exactly what he's doing. A God who knows everything and is capable of everything. 
A God who has us in the palm of his hands. A God who's got us. God's sovereignty is great enough, we see here, to account for our foolish thoughts and actions. Abraham and his foolishness could not derail the plans of God. Do me a favor and let these scriptures marinate in your heart for just a minute. Let me read through them quickly. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20. Let this take hold of us. Whenever our hearts condemn us, 1 John says, God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. What about that? Whenever our hearts lead us astray, God is greater than our hearts and, and he knows all things. Psalm 139 and verse 4. Before a word is even on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. And then may we pray with the psalmist, with David, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He says this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Why? Because we trust a God who knows and is in control. All this ultimately points to this last truth regarding God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty implies our submission. We see this in verse 7. You see, in light of how God arrested his attention and revealed his foreknowledge and might, expectations were laid out for Abimelech. He says, I need you to give Sarah back to Abraham, or else this terrible thing is going to happen to you. You've got to make this right immediately. Listen, Abimelech was taking God at his word, these expectations... In a dream laid out for him, he took him at his word. Why? Because he was arrested by the sovereignty of God, and he understood now that God knows all and controls all. Listen, there was no greater display of God's sovereignty in the history of mankind than his work through Christ Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So how do do we know that? Listen, there were people who thought they were They were doing God a favor or doing humanity a favor by crucifying this man named Jesus who claimed to be God. And there was deception that happened. You know the story. We're going to look at it in the Gospel of John in a couple weeks. You know what happens? And guess what? Through all of that, God, because he's in control, he used that entire situation not just to bring Jesus back to life, but provide a way of salvation for you and me. And so he calls us in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Why can he say that? Because he's proved that he is sovereign. So God keeps his promises because he's sovereign. But notice this as we get to verse 8. God also keeps his promises despite our sin. Despite our sin. Notice what happens in verses 8 through 13. It says, early in the morning... Abimelech got up. He, he called all his servants together and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, What made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought. Now, that's, that's that duh moment here, right? That was the big mistake for Abraham. He said, I thought. I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They, they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, notice that. 
that blame shifting that happens? Do you see it? He says, God had me wonder, and if God wouldn't have done that, I never would have been in this position. Man, such boldness. He said, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. Three things we need to see about sin here. First one is this, our sin damages our testimony before others. We see this clearly in verses 9 and 10. There was little doubt that Abraham was in the wrong in this situation. The irony of this passage is so thick, and I don't want you to miss it. Understand, a pagan king was chastising God's chosen vessel, Abraham. A pagan king was saying, how could you do this to me and my people? Ultimately, this put another part of God's promise in jeopardy. Remember in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, we focus on the child of promise. But what does it say in verse 3? He says, God says to Abraham, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Man, what a blessing Abraham was to Abimelech. Wouldn't you agree? Of course not. He was anything but a blessing. He had brought this, this terrible calamity on the life of Abimelech and all of his kingdom. You see, Abraham's testimony damaged God's work in that place. It had brought the conflict to a greater tension. Then we find in verses 11 and 12, Abraham's frail attempt to explain the whole thing away. And we see this, our distrust of God's goodness leads us into sin. You see, notice Abraham's perspective all the way through verses 11 and 12. It was fixated only on those around him. And he had forgotten about God's goodness. Notice the judgment he casted, cast on Abimelech in that moment. He says, I thought that you weren't God-fearing people. I thought for sure you would kill me on account of my wife. But guess what Abraham never mentions? He never mentions God's goodness. He never says, I know God was going to work all this out. Instead, he focuses only on the perceived wickedness of those around him. You see, he had taken his eyes off of God's presence, provision, and protection. Ultimately, we are very much the same. We're not that much different than Abraham. You see, we forget God's goodness towards us and turn to our own devices to fix the situation, just like Abraham did. We don't like trusting that God has instruction for us. We don't like looking at God's way. You know, Cherie is not allowed to put together Christmas gifts in my house, or in our house, rather. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, that was an illustration. Listen, here's the thing. I asked for permission to use this illustration, and I thought I'd ironed everything out, and then I, I said that. It's our house, just so we're clear. But, but yeah, she doesn't put together Christmas gifts. You know why? One time she tried. You know, men, we get a bad rap for not wanting to read the instructions or ask for help, right? I'm the first one to read instructions, I read all the product reviews before I buy things. I want to have plenty of help and reinforcement around me. Yes, I lack confidence sometimes. But Cherie, she doesn't like to read the instructions. She doesn't like to, doesn't like to ask for help. So one Christmas, I was pressed for time, and, and she decided she was going to help. And she started putting things together. You know, some toys, when they go together, they don't come back apart. Yeah, that, we bought a, another gift in place. It's how it ended. Right? We don't like to ask for help. We don't like to trust that God is there, that he's got instruction for us to lead us and guide us. 
We forget that God is good and that God is there. Let's not forget that that and be tempted to sin. But finally, note this about sin. Our sin is ultimately selfish. Our sin is ultimately all about us. There is no clear evidence of this than in verse 13. Abraham clearly only had himself in mind in this situation. So much so, he had encouraged his bride to sin on his account. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, I said to her, show your loyalty to me, he says. He says, you need to be loyal to me above everyone and everything else. We are so quick to want company in our sin, aren't we? You see, back in chapter 12 when we saw Abram fall into this sin, guess what? Abram was the one that was clearly piloting this ship of sin. It was him that was in control. How much had changed since then? He had invited Sarah into this sin with him. We like to have company because guess what? Sin feels safer when someone's with us. Listen, there's no such thing as victimless sin. We see that clearly in Abraham's sin. Abraham's selfishness had had led him to sin and led those around him into sin. Our testimony of God's goodness and grace hangs on us living as people of good character. And Abraham had failed. It was clear that he needed to go back to the school of grace. He still had so much to learn. So notice this as we get to verse 14. God keeps his promises to teach us grace. God keeps his promises to teach us grace. Very quickly, verses 14 through 18, listen carefully. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and and male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I'm giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Three things I want you to see. God's grace is greater than we deserve. God's grace is greater than we deserve. I think it's interesting in verses 14, 15, and 16 that it's not Abraham that responds with grace first. It's Abimelech, this pagan king. His experience with God's grace was still so fresh in his heart that he extended grace to Abraham and Sarah. Notice the gift that he gave to Abraham was far more extravagant than the situation even called for. God only asked Abimelech to give Sarah back to Abraham. But along with giving Sarah back, it says that he gave him all of this cattle, all of these riches, and all of this money. And then we need to make note that he gave him some land to live on. No longer for the first time, no longer was Abraham homeless. Remember, he's got this tent and he's going place to place for the first time here. As an act of God's grace through Abimelech, now Abraham has a place to live. God was gracious to Abraham. Notice this in verse 17. God shows us grace so we can then show others grace. Abraham responds in verse 17 by praying for Abimelech, which is what he should have done to begin with, of course. 
He prays for Abimelech. And, and listen, here's the application for us. The gospel was not given to us as a treasure to lock away. It was given to us as a gift to be shared. God blesses his people so they can then be a blessing. That was the decree through Abraham back in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless you and then you will be a blessing. But finally, verse 18, God's grace should always direct our attention towards a greater grace. There's a detail in verse 18. You probably read over it quickly. But I guarantee you, Sarah didn't miss it. You see, when Abraham prayed, it says there that God opened the wombs of all of the people in Abimelech's household. That suddenly, the, the women who were unable to bear children, suddenly they could. Now, what was Sarah's difficulty all along? Although the child of promise was going to come through her, she was struggling with this, right? There was insecurity along the way. And yet... As she saw this whole event transpire, there is no doubt in my mind that she looked at a greater grace in store for her and for her household. She saw the testimony of God's might and power all around her. And it wasn't just Abraham that learned about God's grace. It was Sarah. We've seen again and again and again how Abraham was, was leading the charge in understanding God's grace and goodness. It seems as though along the way, Sarah's in the background. But suddenly, at the end of chapter 20... Sarah, we have no doubt learned, as she saw God's mighty display all around her, she had to think, God, I finally see it. I finally get it. There is no doubt that you are the God that you have said you have been all along. There is no doubt that he is the God that he's always said he is. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you've got this skepticism, this hesitancy to take hold of this thing, that, this thing we call the gospel, this testimony of God's goodness towards you where you were dead in your sin and you needed a savior and God sent a savior through Jesus. He came, he died on a cross for you and then he rose again on the third day and, and that miraculous thing happened on your account so you could have relationship with God. And maybe all of that sounds a bit strange to you. Here's the way I like to witness to people who are skeptics. You, you ready for this? When there is an obvious occasion where God has done something in my life to intervene to put his grace on display. I am quick to tell those closest to me who don't know Jesus, listen, that's not luck or fate, that's God. And here's the truth. I challenge them and I challenge you. I want you to look for the testimonies of God's grace in your own life. Abimelech was a pagan king. He was a godless person. And yet, God used this very situation to direct his thoughts and his attention and Abraham's thoughts and his attention and Sarah's thoughts and her attention all towards his goodness and his grace. God kept his promises. God has promises for you as well. Would you look at the evidence of God's grace in your life and understand there is a greater grace in Jesus. There is a relationship to be had with him that none other can provide.